The 18 months since Russia launched its full-scale assault upon Ukraine have been transformative for the nations of Europe in many respects. It is arguable, however, that no European nation has undertaken a more dramatic rethink than Poland. A little more than 18 months ago, Poland was routinely regarded by much of the rest of the EU as a chronic troublemaker, sitting up the back of the class with Hungary, making a racket and generally disrupting stuff. While Hungary has persisted in its delinquency, for all that anybody really cares, Poland has responded rather more appropriately to the gravity of Europe's current situation. Poland has become a major bastion of support for Ukraine and has announced intentions of drastically scaling up its own military. Speaking in Prague last year, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz noted, with ambiguous enthusiasm, that Europe's centre is moving eastward. In the same speech, Scholz noted that Ukraine isn't Luxembourg. Bringing it into the EU and or NATO will be a seismic adjustment. On the fringes of last month's NATO summit in Vilnius, furtive nervousness was discernible regarding this prospect. Two big, heavily armed, increasingly confident countries in Europe's east, demanding and indeed deserving to be heard. How ambitious is Poland? How important a bloc could Poland and Ukraine become? And how happy about this is everybody else? This is The Foreign Desk. Ukraine was always interesting because it was the strategic space between NATO and Russia. Well, that strategic space is now gone, and that makes NATO more vulnerable. So anything that looks strong on the eastern flank, I think, would make the French and Germans actually fairly happy. These eastern flank countries are getting more of a voice, and in a way, they're bigger players. But at the end of the day, it's still really... I think the big Western capitals that on very sensitive topics end up calling the shots. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined first of all from Warsaw by Radek Sikorski, a member of European Parliament who served as Poland's Minister of Defence from 2005 to 2007 and as Poland's Foreign Minister from 2007 to 2014. First of all, how would you say in general Poland's outlook has shifted since Russia attacked Ukraine 18 months ago? No, we didn't have to do that because we had a two-track policy towards Russia. On the one hand, trying to normalize, Russia was negotiating a partnership and cooperation agreement with the European Union. We supported that. We've had Putin come to Poland, Putin come to Katyn. Um, We've had reconciliation by the churches. But we knew that the... um, genie of imperialism and the need to dominate was still there. So we were spending a healthy 2% of GDP on defense for the last 15 years. And Poland was warning its allies about Nord Stream and about Putin's designs on Ukraine. Poland has more recently been talking about a huge spike in that defence spending to perhaps 5% of GDP, which is more than twice the suggested NATO minimum threshold. It's understandable enough given the current circumstances, but do you think perhaps dating back to the post-World War II period, there has been an ambition of one day being a great European power akin to a France or a Germany? Well, we can't match the... um 
German or the French uh, military budget because their economies are so much bigger. But, you know, it wouldn't be fair for Poland alone and for the eastern flank countries alone to be defending all of Europe from Putin. And therefore, I'm a strong supporter of European defense. Uh, you know, we have a defense budget called the uh, European Peace Facility, from which we've been arming Ukraine, to which we contribute in proportion to GDP. And that seems to me much fairer. Is there an ambition, though, do you think, attached to that proposed increase in defence spending of Poland being more or less self-reliant even within NATO and the European Union? Obviously, you don't need to look too far back in Polish history for difficulties with the neighbours in both directions. Well, we've been uh, invaded and occupied by Russia many times in the past. So we have the doctrine that every country has an army either your own or a foreign one, and in the medium term, your own comes cheaper. But no, we don't have a full-spectrum army. Practically no one in Europe does. And uh, without the uh, US commitment and help to Ukraine, this war would not be going as well for Ukraine. So uh, we do rely on key defense components, strategic intelligence, and of course, ultimately, on the nuclear component, we have to rely, rely on that for, to our allies. But Poland has a proud military tradition. Uh, we have a, a tin-horned dictator in Mr. Lukashenko in Belarus provoking us. And I don't think we will be messed with. One of the reasons we're doing this episode is German Chancellor Olaf Scholz's recent remark that the centre of gravity, the centre of power, if you will, in Europe is shifting eastwards. Does it feel like that in Poland? Has there been a sense from the last 18 months that this is a moment at which Poland, and quite reasonably, is going to be listened to, taken a bit more seriously than it previously has been, and this is an occasion it should rise to? Well, we feel we've been vindicated because we've been uh, warning Germany and other allies about Nord Stream, about Putin, about the deployment of Iskander missiles and the Kaliningrad Oblast and so on. But we have a nationalist government which is picking unnecessary quarrels with Germany and with Brussels. They've patched up their relationship with the United States. Good. We have a general election in October. Poland is an indispensable logistical hub for the defense of Ukraine, but it's not yet a political hub, which it should be, given that the crisis in the East is so serious and given Poland's uh, strategic location. This was another theme we detected when we recently attended the NATO summit in Vilnius. There's a certain amount of grappling going on, I think, with the reality of what it will mean for NATO and perhaps the EU when Ukraine joins both. Because this, of course, will not be a matter of absorbing a reasonably small and peaceable country, the equivalent of, say, absorbing Croatia as the EU did 10 years ago. This will be absorbing a huge, heavily armed, battle-tested, very militarized country, and I think this is also what Chancellor Schultz was getting at. At such a time as that happens, do you perceive the likelihood of a, you know, a a natural Poland-Ukraine axis? Will that be a block within a block? There is obviously an intermingled history between those two countries as well. I hope so. We have a lot of history between us, most of it good. We were the same country for 400 years. I hope we've forged the kind of relationship that uh, Germany and France have after a lot of difficulties in the past. 
because we share some interests. And I agree with you that Ukraine will have the best army in Europe and they'll be training us if they win this war. Do you think, though, that there is within EU and NATO circles, possibly more EU than NATO, any amount of nervousness about what it might mean when Ukraine is admitted and when there is this huge block of power in the east of the continent? Of course, it will shift power relationships, just like Brexit has arithmetically increased the uh, proportion of both the German economy and the German population and its voting power inside the EU. So Ukraine's accession will mean, for example, that Ukraine plus Poland will have more MEPs and more voting power in the European Council than Germany. I'm sure this is making some people uneasy. But the benefits will be huge. Ukraine uh, has uh, nuclear industry, some of the best agricultural land in Europe, IT industry, and an army that has shown it can fight successfully. That concern that you mentioned, though, this is presumably among, I guess, what we might think of the establishment powers of Western Europe, France and Germany. What's your sense of, of really how relaxed they are about the idea of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO and the EU? Well, with the British departure, the EU has become something of a Carolinian Europe with attachments, whereas Ukraine's accession will actually balance Europe between East and West. And I think it will be a very good thing. You mentioned earlier that there is an election due fairly shortly in Poland. Do you see the result of it, whichever way it goes, having any bearing on the direction of travel in this particular respect? This idea of Poland becoming a much larger, perhaps much more assertive military power, is is, is there bipartisan consensus on that? Yes, we all support uh, a strong defence posture and there is consensus on supporting Ukraine. What will change is that if pro-European parties win, we will stop the Cold War with Germany and we'll fix our relationship with Brussels so that Poland finally gets hundreds of billions uh, for the uh, recovery plan and so that Poland uses its last decade of being a net recipient of EU funds. And that should be very good for the Polish economy and therefore, ultimately, for our ability to afford a strong defence. Radek Sikorski, thank you for joining us. That was the MEP and former Polish Foreign and Defence Minister Radek Sikorski. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, for a look at the wider implications for NATO and Europe of a potential Poland-Ukraine axis. I'm joined from Brussels by Lily Bayer, a senior reporter covering NATO at Politico, and from Berlin by Stephen Erlanger, chief diplomatic correspondent in Europe for The New York Times. Lily, first of all, what sense do you get of the extent to which NATO and the EU's response to the war in Ukraine is being led by the those countries like Poland situated much closer to Russia? So there is a big debate going on right now whether the center of gravity of NATO and and maybe Europe more generally is moving east or not. And I think there are a couple of ways of thinking about this. In terms of the voice and the stature 
of Central and Eastern European countries, I do think that they have gained more of a political voice over the past months since the outbreak of the war. On the one hand, some of these governments in Poland and the Baltic states had long been warning about the Russian threat. They were dismissed in some circles as hawks. And I think that after the invasion, they did gain a bit more respect and more of a voice. You know, you hear more Central and Eastern European leaders and ministers, for example, in in Western media than perhaps you did before. But in terms of policy in Brussels, I do think that some Eastern governments are still actually punching below their weight, in particular Poland. And there are several reasons for that. The first is that Poland is still embroiled in a spat, several disputes actually, with Brussels revolving around issues with respect for the rule of law, uh, the independence of the judiciary. Uh, There will be an election in Poland this fall that I think um, officials and politicians in Brussels are keeping a, a very close eye on. But until some of those issues are resolved, I think, Poland, even though it has a lot of respect in terms of uh, its support for Ukraine, still isn't being seen as a very major player in this town, from my perspective. Uh, Stephen, a variation on that question. Is there a resentment in Poland and indeed among those countries which were once members of the Warsaw Pact or even the Soviet Union itself, a resentment that they weren't taken seriously enough before the last 18 months? And are we seeing a certain amount of that now bubbling up? You have some of that. I'm not sure if it's resentment so much as we told you so, and you were so complacent, you didn't understand, you weren't listening, especially you Germans and also you French. The Italians, nobody expected to be terribly aggressive anyway, but there was this feeling that since 2014 and the annexation of Crimea, Central Europeans said, look, Putin's on the march and the rest of Europe didn't want to hear about it. Now, they can be very obnoxious sometimes when they say it this way. The relationship of this current Polish government, the Law and Justice Party, which is quite anti-European in its ways, has been running against Germany. I mean, they've been using old tropes about Nazism and so on, and the Germans don't really know what to even say about it, right? They're just hoping that the elections now on October 15th will produce a different Poland. But you see this in the Baltic states too, these little small countries, but their voices have been very loud, partly because of us, the media, because they're very articulate and they speak very good English. But Lily's absolutely right. In the context of the European Union, still money matters, right? Population matters and money matters. And French and Germans still basically run the show inside the EU, but the EU is not, you know, it's not NATO. It's more of a peace project. So these voices are strong. They've been stronger in NATO, but I think even in the Vilnius summit, where we both were, the Central Europeans overplayed their hands. And in fact, the Americans and and the Germans behind the Americans slapped them down somewhat over pushing to get Ukraine a more specific membership route. And so it was a very tense meeting, which I don't think anybody really wanted. 
The NATO summit in Vilnius was kind of what gave us the idea for this program. We did get a sense that there is an understanding that the balance of power is shifting eastward and that it's going to do even more so. Lily, is there an amount of nervousness about what this is going to mean for NATO and the EU absorbing Ukraine? It does seem like Poland and Ukraine would be natural allies even within either of those blocs. What we can say for sure is that already now, NATO is very, very focused on the eastern flank. So the the new military plans, the way the battle groups are working, the way um, I think a lot of officials are are talking about the future of the alliance and where they want to put forces and investment, they are looking very, very closely at the Russian threat. And what that means, of course, is a strong focus on those frontline states. And that, in turn, gives those frontline states more of a voice in the alliance. Uh, Poland, in particular, is a place where a lot of supplies are going through and into Ukraine. So they're doing a lot of, I think, you know, coordination with, with other allies on that bilateral military assistance that is flowing through their territory. But in NATO, in NATO headquarters, I think the U.S. still is just such a dominant player that when the interests or the perspectives of the eastern flank or really any other ally doesn't quite match what the U.S. wants, usually the U.S. gets what it wants in the end. And that's what we sort of saw in Vilnius, where Washington and Berlin were very hesitant about giving Ukraine a concrete pledge that it will become a member of the alliance after the war. And as a result, Ukraine did not get the concrete promise that it wanted. So again, I think like we're seeing in the EU, these eastern flank countries are are getting more of a voice and in a way they're bigger players. But at the end of the day, it's still really, I think, the big Western capitals that on very sensitive topics end up calling the shots. But on that thought, Stephen, is there perhaps more in common as things presently stand between Washington and the Eastern European countries than there is between Washington and the Western European countries? To some degree, yes, of course, because, I mean, I think the United States sees the Russian threat as considerable. What Joe Biden doesn't want to do is get into a war with Russia. I mean, he's been very careful, perhaps many people would suggest too careful, not to give Ukraine the kinds of weapons that would strike the Russian heartland. And it's for that simple reason. I mean, nobody wants a third world war. And over time, these concerns about how Putin will react have become somewhat less, but they're still quite considerable. I used to tease the head of Estonia, Kaya Kallas, who's very articulate, you know, about how Putin should be brought to justice and and so on. And I said, first of all, it's not genocide, not as I understand it, war crimes maybe, but what are you going to do, drive an Estonian tank to Moscow and drag him to The Hague? I mean, there's sometimes there's this gap between the moral language, which I appreciate, and the reality on the ground. I mean, the Germans and the French would say, look, Russia's not going to disappear. It's going to be our neighbor, like it or not, for a very long time to come. We need better deterrence. 
But at some point, we're going to have to talk to Russia about what European security means. Now, for the Central Europeans, that's anathema. They say, we don't want to talk to Russia. We, we want to talk about a security against Russia, not in any kind of cooperation with Russia. And in any event, I think everyone agrees, so long as Putin is in power and prosecuting this war, there's no real conversation possible. So yeah, I think the Americans are very much closer, particularly the Republicans, I think, to the Central Europeans. But, you know, the Americans are thinking about China. I mean, they would prefer the Europeans handle Ukraine a bit more and let the Americans worry about the Indo-Pacific a bit more. Um, it's already, you know, a huge amount of money everybody's spending. And that's, to me, the question, which is how long will the West continue to provide this amount of funding if the Ukrainian counteroffensive isn't making considerable progress? Lily, you're sitting there in Brussels, in Belgium, more or less in between the two countries, France and Germany, which regard themselves, I think, as the two great European pillars, especially since the United Kingdom embarked on its present extended nervous breakdown about seven years ago. But on the quiet especially, how overjoyed or otherwise are they about the idea of Poland and Ukraine along with it wanting a much bigger say? We did hear quite recently uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz acknowledged that, as he put it, the centre of Europe is moving eastward. But how happy did he sound when he said that? It depends exactly on how, how we define kind of a bigger role. I think, for example, if Poland became a bigger payer into the EU budget, France and Germany wouldn't mind. I think that Western Europeans are generally actually pretty happy when Eastern economies are doing well. That's good for everyone. They're happy to see when there's more investment in defense along the Eastern flank, because in part that means that there's maybe even a bit less pressure on them to step up. In terms of the say within the EU and NATO. In the EU, uh, because of the way the decision-making is currently structured, it's quite a unique system where even on sensitive issues, especially when it comes to foreign policy and budget, a lot of things require unanimity. And that means that any country, regardless of its size, can block decisions and actually has uh, more of a say than, than it would otherwise. And I think that France and Germany would be okay with a more influential Poland if there was perhaps a different government in power in Warsaw. I think that they're not totally comfortable with, with law and justice for various reasons when it comes to, to the rule of law, when it comes to minority rights, but they are open to working with Poland. I think both countries do see Warsaw as an important player on the continent and as a player that can be helpful to them and constructive on defense, on economic issues. And that's why going back to the election in a few weeks, I think that's why so many people around the continent are really paying attention to this election in Poland and see it as uh, really a key moment, actually, for European politics. 
Stephen, do you get the sense then that there's any sort of fidgeting in Western European capitals about the future military balance of power in Europe? I mean, granted that we're all supposed to be on the same side and everything, but it's very easy to imagine five, ten years from now, a post-war Ukraine, which will be an extremely heavily armed and extremely militarised country in the heart of Europe, next to a Poland which has extraordinary ambitions for expanding its own military and reasonably enough, given its history and its situation, is is everybody else in NATO slash the EU entirely relaxed about that? Well, it's a very good question. I'm not sure they've thought it through very hard. I mean, one of the best arguments for Ukraine joining NATO is to say a post-war Ukraine will be the best army in Europe and the most modern and have the most modern equipment and be most integrated. So, That is true. I think in a way there may be relief rather than concern because a very strong Poland, Ukraine, even Romania is the best bulwark against Russia, which would make the Germans happy. The Germans don't want to be on the front line. I mean, Ukraine was always interesting because it was the strategic space between NATO and Russia. Well, that strategic space is now gone. And that makes NATO more vulnerable. So anything that looks strong on the eastern flank, I think, would make the French and Germans actually fairly happy. And Lily, we're coming towards the end of our time, and it's a, it's a question that about NATO that has been obviously postponed for at least a year by the decision of Jens Stoltenberg to go round again as Secretary General. But there was some talk that there should be leadership of NATO from the East, from the former Warsaw Pact, perhaps even from the former Soviet Union. Is that the kind of ambition that you sense a country like Poland and one day a country like Ukraine might have, that they think, you know, we have by now earned our seat at the top of the table? It's a really interesting question because I think before the full-scale Russian invasion, there was this big push for the next NATO Secretary General to be preferably a woman and from the East, from a relatively new NATO member. But since the outbreak of the war, I think the conversation has become a bit more complicated because uh, even though officials from the East keep pushing for some possible candidates, someone like theoretically, let's say, Kaya Kalas, the Estonian prime minister who, who was mentioned earlier on the program, or even leaders from uh, countries like Romania or Slovakia, uh, there have been some names floated. The sense I get is that some Western capitals at this stage are actually not as comfortable with having an Eastern candidate as they would have been otherwise, because they see the Easterners as too hawkish for their taste, and they don't necessarily want someone very hawkish on stage speaking on behalf of NATO. And I think that that dynamic may have played into the extension for Jens Stoltenberg, that they simply couldn't find a compromise candidate at this sensitive moment. But for sure, I think we can expect Eastern countries to push for candidates in the future, especially since they haven't had a secretary general yet. And Stephen, just finally, to bring this back to Poland, I I want to try and and we won't hold you to any of this, and I always feel a bit awkward when asking guests to gaze into the crystal ball, but if, if we think ahead 10 years or so from now, 
Do you see Poland as occupying a much bigger space in the EU and in NATO than it presently does? Because there are countries which join these organisations and their attitude is basically, yeah, fine, great, we're just happy to be here, call us if there's a thing, but we won't be any trouble. And then there are those countries which do have, often rooted in their history, which may be grand and glorious and somewhat imperial, do have ambitions of asserting themselves, of being seen as as a great power. Does Poland feel to you like it wants to be that kind of country? Yes, it does. Very, very much so. And in fact, I think, you know, given everyone's commitment to Ukraine, I mean, people aren't thinking through very hard yet what that means, because it's it's going to mean quite a lot. I think the polls will be crucial, as, as they in fact currently are, in integrating Ukraine into Western Europe and even into NATO. I mean, Poland, despite law and justice issues and its anti-Brussels feelings and its fights with the European Court of Justice, in fact, has been, as Lily said, a crucial entrepot crossing point for weapons going into Ukraine. It's taken in thousands of Ukrainian refugees, many of whom aren't going to be going back home very soon. It's beginning to complain about it in, internally, but the fact is Poland, I think, has earned quite a, a lot of good marks. And as you say, it does have ambitions. It's a big, big country, and it's and it's a very rich country, and it's a big agricultural country. And um, I think, you know, this was always one of the big issues the EU had about enlargement. But I mean, if it really does follow through on what it promises on enlargement, then Poland will become a net contributor. Other people's payments will go up. They're going to have to redo how the EU votes. They're going to have to redo how commissioners are named. It's going to change Europe considerably. Um, And as Europe gets bigger, the old debate about bigger rather than deeper. It's going to have to either get looser or it's going to be in trouble because the Polish notion of what the EU should be is a lot closer to the Nordic notion or even to the old British notion than to the French notion. Lily Bayer and Stephen Erlanger, many thanks both for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Mullett, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.